for joining me, Pete Holterman, for the Credentials Only Podcast, where you are introduced to people who work in sports. Today's guest is Dr. Christy Sweeney, an associate professor at the University of North Florida. Dr. Sweeney is the school's sport management program director, as well as the chair of the UNF Intercollegiate Athletics Committee. While working with both undergraduate and graduate students, Dr. Sweeney is engaged with men and women who will soon be pursuing work in this industry. In her time as a professor, she has seen the rapid growth of university programs designed for aspiring sports business professionals. A lot of sport management programs started, they stemmed off of physical education programs. So they were housed in colleges of education. Um, they kind of, that's kind of how they grew until business schools really started to see the impact of these are real positions. Like these are positions that our graduates could have. If you look at the growth in the programs, about half the colleges now are in a college of business, and that's really where you've seen the impact. In addition to her work in the classroom, Dr. Sweeney regularly conducts research and publishes articles on her findings, which, while insightful, she realizes may not necessarily be impactful for those working in the industry. Academics need to write in plain language. I mean, we really do. Nobody's going to seek out my article or our article on the A-League unless it's in plain language or it's been transcribed into plain language into like a three-minute read on LinkedIn. All of this academic experience gives Dr. Sweeney a unique perspective on the business. So we spent a lot of time in this episode discussing how the industry, from youth sports to the pros, will recover from COVID. If I could pick one thing great to come out of this, it would be that the youth sport landscape is reset. Check out credentialsonly.com for show notes that include more information on what we discuss in this episode. And please take a moment to leave a review wherever you are listening. Without further ado, please enjoy this conversation with Dr. Christy Sweeney from the Sport Management Program at the University of North Florida on Credentials Only. Dr. Sweeney, thanks for joining me here on Credentials Only. It seems like working in sports is almost your destiny, given your father. What's your dad's name and what's his background in athletics? Um, his name is Bob Sweeney. Um, I grew up in a small in two small towns in Iowa, but um, he was a high school basketball coach and a teacher uh, for 20 years. And then when my, um, all my siblings were gone, he became an athletic director. So he retired, he went back to work as an athletic director, and now um, he's actually overseeing a nine, which doesn't sound like a lot of money when we talk about the grand, the grand scheme of sports, but in a small town in Iowa, they passed a $9 million levy to redo their uh, sports facilities. And so he now is um, in charge of that. So he's still working, um, retired, retired again. But yeah, so I grew up, I mean, I tell people all the time that uh, my students will see me type and they're like, where did you learn how to do that? And I said, on Sundays growing up, we'd go to church. We'd have donuts after church. We'd have open, my dad would open the gym from like 12 to four. And when we got tired of playing basketball, we'd go across the hall. He was a business teacher to the typing room and everything in my family was a competition. So we would type when we were bored. That was like our break to go to the typing room. So I actually, it's so funny. I think like what an amazing skill. Cause I watch, I watch, the typist of today and I'm like oh <laughs> <laughs> how do you describe the influence that that he had on, on you and even your siblings because you're all an athletic family aren't you yes um it was just really I think sports was ingrained in us um and to be honest I think and my father would tell you this uh we probably I mean we were good athletes um but he always told us like you're you're a little slower than that person. So you're going to have to work a little bit harder. So I think that's probably the best thing I took away was they ingrained in us. Uh, if you want something, go get it. Um, and it takes a lot of practice. You don't just pick up a basketball and start shooting one day and expect it to go in. So, and he's really good. He still ingrains that uh, in my daughter and in all his grandkids. So it's pretty awesome. You were a student athlete yourself. What sport did you play? I actually played softball. I was a pitcher. Um, spent many days playing catch with my dad. And so when I went to go to college, I, I, I think I wanted to play softball. I grew up in a small town, so I played five sports. Um, and being a pitcher, I was a pretty decent pitcher. Um, 
And I was just telling someone this story the other day. Uh, my dad pretty much told me, you throw a batting practice at a small division one school. I'm not paying for you to go to a division three school. And the division two school at the time was Northeast Missouri State, which is now Truman. And we went and visited. He said, and I don't really think that coach likes you very much. I don't think he's that interested. And that was like my literally spring break college trip with my dad. I was like, wow. And we're in Missouri. He said, oh, let's drive over to Northwest Missouri State. That's where he had gone. He played basketball there. And I took a campus tour before we went to softball practice. And I looked at him. I said, this is where I'm going to college, whether I play softball or not. And it was just like, you know, I always tell kids when they're looking at schools, like, you'll just show up somewhere and you'll be like, this is it. Like, this is where I'm going. So, yeah. So, I ended up like I got a scholarship and I um, played college softball for four years. And yeah. You go to school, you play softball, but what did you study, your major and your minor? I actually studied political science. I think it was probably government, so it's on my diploma, and criminal justice. I was always said I was going to go to law school. That's what I was going to do. Um, and I think my sophomore year, I wanted to change my major to physical education. I think I probably always maybe wanted to be a teacher. Um, and they, I don't want to say they wouldn't let me, but let's just say I was talked out of it by a number of people. And so I came full circle. But at my first jobs were in uh, politics. I worked on a congressional race in Iowa. And then I actually eventually went to D.C. and worked for the congressman. I mean, politics is just another component of sports, I think, really. <laughs> Especially in today's world. <laughs> there, there is a lot of scoreboard watching and, yes. and many other facets that, are, yes. that overlap. You then went back to school. I, mm -hmm. Where did you go and what were the next degrees you pursued? Um, I went to Loris College and did my master's in physical education, athletic administration. Um, and I actually coached softball while I was there. I was a grad assistant and... I found out very quickly that I was not cut out for coaching, at least as a profession. Um, I saw too much resemblance probably in my student athletes. Um, I always say that I had a really great time in college. I loved, I loved college and I was a good student, but I loved college. I loved all the social aspects of college. And I always try and tell my students today, like, so the purpose of college is just, is not just to come here and to go to class. Like there's a whole, like, you're supposed to be learning a lot of things right now. Like how much to drink on Wednesday and be able to go to class on Thursday. Right? <laughs> so when you're in the real world, how much can you drink on Wednesday and make it to work? And I know that that might sound like a bad example, but I think that that's really the truth. Um, so I had a player, I just remember coaching and she was just, she reminded me of myself at that age and I was like oh I'm, my hair will be great too fast to do this so then I went to New Mexico my twin brother at the time was in New Mexico um and I got it was like an internship um but my advisor at Loris College had done his PhD at the University of New Mexico so at the time there were only eight six or eight schools in the country that even offered a PhD in sport management I never in my life thought I would get a degree in sport management and so I went and he said, you should think about getting a PhD. And so I got there and I did. I took a class and then I just kind of got funneled into the program and I got it paid for. And that's how I, and then I was really broke. And there was an ad for a job at Xavier that I think it was a Friday at noon and it closed that day and I applied and in the back of my mind, it was that teaching thing. I was like, I knew I wasn't going to stay in college athletics. And yeah, so then that's kind of how I got there. So I will admit to having been a college student who was quick to get out the door. Um, you know, I was counting down the days of graduation and the idea of going back for a further education was not something I was willing to entertain. So to a, an education phobe like me, the value of that master's and then that PhD, you know, what, what exactly are the differences between those levels as you get into that postgraduate work, but then also what can they open for you in terms of doors? Um, well, I think it depends on who you're talking to. And so maybe let me, let me backtrack. I don't want to age myself. <laughs> <laughs> 
but I didn't go back. I didn't go back to get my master's degree until I was, I was 25, 25 or 26. My mother sent me a book called the quarter life crisis. Cause she didn't know what I was doing. I mean, I swear it's a true story. And you know, I try and there, there's two things. I think that we've seen a big shift in education or uh, furthering your education because we've always had this idea that oh, there aren't jobs out there. And, and I always say there aren't jobs that pay as much as you might think you should make. So I always say the best way to figure out what you want to do is by working jobs you don't want to do. So I worked in politics and I coached and I worked in college athletics and I figured that that just wasn't the right fit. And so I always tell people to really think about that. Like, and I tell students that, why do you want to go back to school? If you studied sport management in your undergrad and you haven't worked in the field, why do you want to get a master's degree? Or what do you want to get a master's degree in? And then what happens if now you have an undergraduate and a master's degree and you get your first job in sports and you're like, oh, this is not for me. So for me at the time, I went to school uh, when I got a PhD, I think the year when I came to Xavier, I think there were like 90 new positions, faculty positions in sport management. And there were only six countries in the nation that, were, that had PhD programs. So part of it is timing. I think there's this, I, I'm really candid about this. I think there's a saturation of PhDs in our field. Some people may not like that I say that, but the idea of we need to infuse more, um, like of your experience, Pete, of we need, to, we need more sport industry experts who can come in. And at, like at Florida, at the University of at North Florida, and really in the Florida system, you have to have a master's degree to be able to be an adjunct. Now, there are times we can get it around it with people's experience, but I'm like, these are the people who are doing these jobs every day, right? Um, they're the ones who can infuse that other aspect. And, and I do think with this pandemic, I do think that will, I think there'll be a change in the landscape of higher ed. So I always just tell people, I'm a, I'm a geek. There's no, there's no question about that. Like, I'm a geek. I love to read anything and everything. If someone says, oh, the sky is going to be green tomorrow. I'm going to go read and figure out why it's going to be green. Like I need those questions answered. Um, I think we all need to want to learn more. I think people learn in different ways. And I think the truth is the millennials were the largest generation. They all have college degrees and the value of a college degree has gone down somewhat. I mean, you're, yeah. you're in the classroom now and you're working with these students in the sport management program at, at University of North Florida. Um, that job, being a professor, it's more than just that lecture. It's more than just grading a paper or something. Can you walk me through what that work is that you're doing beyond just the education that I probably can imagine? <laughs> yeah, so in the role that I'm in, so I'm actually, I'll give you when prior to becoming the program director. So I teach, a typical load is three classes a semester. I'm the program director, so I teach two classes. Um, I also have a research requirement. Um, so I try, I mean, ideally, I like to have at least one article published every year and have another one under review. I mean, in this, I felt like it, when we went shelter in place, I was like, oh, I'm gonna get all this research done, this is gonna be great. It didn't necessarily happen. And then I have service. So I sit on committees, um, service to organizations, local sport organizations. I was able uh, to do some free consulting uh, with a local organization, you know, people who call for advice. Um, so that kind of, those are all the things. I think my students are think that I just come to class some, until they get to know. Like, or my dad, I remember taking this job. He's like, oh, I need your hours. I need to work these hours. So I'm like, well, I'll go get a PhD. Um, yeah, it's more than that. It's, I have to prepare for my classes, teach my classes. And you know, the one thing about the sport industry, which I do think separates good programs or good faculty from average faculty is my lectures change every single semester and every single year. 
because everything changes. I mean, I teach sport, sport finance is really my area. And I haven't really wrapped my head around what changes I'll have to make for the fall because everything's different. It's all new. It's a dynamic curriculum because it has to be. It's, yeah. it's not yeah. a historical thing that happened centuries ago. It's happening real time. Yeah. And the other thing is being in a major. So, and I, students take my class because that's what they chose to take. So there's a lot of career advice, a lot of, hey, can you write me a letter of recommendation? Or, hey, do you think I should do this? Um, my students would probably tell you I feel they're that mother voice that they left <laughs> to go to college to get away from. And they're like, oh, Dr. Sandy, why do you have to say that? Well, because your mom would say that, right? And they're like, yes. And then they go <laughs> on their way. <laughs> so you mentioned the research and publishing side of it. And that, that fascinates me a little bit especially to know that you're researching in sport and what are the topics? What are you looking into and, and how do you then bring that to life to publish? It's a process. So my research, so I just published an article with two um, co-authors who are in Australia and it was on the A-League, um, their soccer league, which has now gone through a huge kind of rebrand. But most of my research is on sport consumer behavior, on why people attend sporting events. So I was thinking last night while I'm watching, uh, when I was watching TV, when I was watching, I had the baseball game on. And then I think I saw the Dodgers too, and they had the cut cardboard cutouts. Mm. So you think like, who purchases those, right? Who are the people who buy those? Where do they live? How much money do they make? Why do they buy them? You know, there's a whole lot of things. Has, have the Dodgers really thought about what the diversity looks like in their cardboard cutouts? We know that Major League Baseball has, not this past year they did better, but they've had struggles in terms of attendance. So that becomes a really interesting question. Like I'm looking at the cutouts last night thinking like, is this their fan base? <laughs> right? What needs to change? Those mm -hmm. are the things I look at because those are, um, things that are really, I think, interesting and I think relevant to how organizations might make decisions. So there's a big, but there is a big disconnect between academic research. So I think one of the things that I think the future of higher ed, I think at least, I think needs to really recognize that, and I just made my students take a class, it was called Writing in Plain Language. They're doing these LinkedIn learnings. Academics need to write in plain language. I mean, we really do. People don't, nobody's going to seek out my article or our article on the A-League unless it's in plain language or it's been transcribed into plain language into like a three-minute read on LinkedIn or a two-minute read. Where do these ultimately get published and who's the audience for these? This one was published in, now you have to, my, the two lead authors are, are from Australia and they're in a business mm -hmm. school. So it's the Asian, you're going to ask me. <laughs> I, it's like, I think it's, and I feel horrible. The Asian Journal of Sport Marketing. I can just see the acronym. Okay. Um, it's A rated. So it's an A rated business journal. The interesting thing is it took us a year. Typically turnaround time is a year. So you send the paper in. It gets blind peer reviewed, all these academics read it. Oh, we should blah, blah, blah. Then it comes back and you make the edits and then you send it back. And I think we got it in 361 days or something. So it's a process. And that's probably where I get myself in trouble. I always say, um, I'm not really a true academic. I always go with the Bobby Knight joke that I'm piled higher and deeper. And academics, if you're talking to people on campuses, they're like, I'm like, I'm piled higher and deeper. So Bobby Knight, you got a BS, you have a right, MS, and you have piled higher and deeper. So I say that to people and they're like, I'm like, oh, never mind. Clearly you don't know who Bobby Knight is. <laughs> I had not heard Bobby Knight call PhD that. So you've mentioned um, a few times just the number of programs available for the PhD in sport management, but it feels like for me over the time I've been working in the field, from undergraduate to graduate programs for sport management, it just seems to have multiplied. It, yeah, it has. What, what's driving this interest? Um, well, the growth of the sport industry. 
Um, and the idea that what really happened is a lot of um, sport management programs started, they stemmed off of physical education programs. Um, so they were housed in colleges of education. Um, they kind of, that's kind of how they grew until business schools really started to see the impact of these are real positions. Like these are positions that our graduates, right, could have. Um, so I really think that's part of the growth. The, the big growth is business schools kind of latching onto this is a real thing. And this is important to kind of have that type of emphasis. And so that typically, if you look at the growth in the programs, about half the colleges now are in a college of business. And that's really where you've seen the impact. Like today, I just saw one of our advisory board members sent something over at from Ohio University. It's a certificate and it's in sports betting. And on my LinkedIn this morning, New Hampshire uh, University School of Law has a five um, course certificate on sports betting. New Hampshire already legalized sports betting. Florida hasn't yet, but you can find, I mean, there's projections. Florida is going to be by 2021. And so there are a lot of implications. You get the chance when you're in the university and especially as you said, when you're in the major, this is a focus. This is not a liberal arts class that they're ticking a, a box on. They're, they want to be in these fields and you get to play the mother role. What's it like for you to then follow your students as they go out and they get jobs and then not even just the first job, but sometimes the second, the third job. I, I could see you smiling. This, yeah. That clearly is, is a sense of satisfaction for you. Yeah, I think that's, that's kind of the coolest thing. Um, we just, we just, this class that I'm teaching this summer just had a webinar series. And so they did some alumni panels. So yeah, just to see where students are and to see what they're able to do. So it is, I think just, it's fun to watch them. Cause I'll be honest, if I, you know, when I first got into teaching at Xavier, I, I was not, I, don't, I wasn't a hundred percent committed to like, this is what I'm gonna do. At that stage of my life, I was like, I'm not sure in the classroom I want is necessarily where I'm going to end up because there's just so many cool jobs in sport. And then my daughter came along and that kind of, uh, I think I'd already decided I like the teaching aspect of it, but yeah, it's just, it's cool. We have students everywhere. And so it's just awesome to see them kind of be able to go everywhere. You mentioned that alumni panel and nearly every guest that I've had on has talked about the importance of networking and you have the unique opportunity to kind of create that environment amongst your students to be that matchmaker, to connect people of specific interests and whatnot. But how do you view that networking? I mean, it, it is so important to get that leg up. Is that as important as that whatever letters you might have, whatever Bobby Knight's going to call that, the letters you have after your name? Well, I think the networking is really important. I do think who you know is really important, but I always follow it up with what you know becomes important when you're introduced to you, right? Uh, someone who knows someone. So it's, I think that that's important. And I, my, I'm pretty honest with my students. A student could walk in my office and it could be a student who I just know is on top of things, right? I'm going to do this. I'm going to do it the right way. They can answer questions. They can articulate. I, and they're like, I want to do this. And I had a student, he wants to, and I'm like, okay, well, let's make a call. And I sent a message and I was like, there, it's done. And he was like, okay, that's, that's amazing. But I have other students, right, who I'm like, okay, you need to do this and you need to do that. Um, it is about being open. That's why I think even in the sport industry, when, even when anyone who graduates from college, I mean, most of us walked into our first job, like, what are we doing? <laughs> right? Maybe the second job too, you know. The second job too, yeah. I think, I, um, and I do, I, that's what I kind of stress to them is the importance of just being a lifelong learner. And there's always something you can learn. So I think with this, for me in the sport industry, we need to do a better job in higher ed of trying to bridge that gap. Like, because I always say, if I went to get a job in the sport industry right now, I'd take the PhD off my resume. Uh, just because um, I've talked with people, because I think that naturally comes with like, you're in a different world or sometimes I think there's a negative connotation to that. 
um, I don't know, you know, like this, oh, professor who thinks they know everything and they've never done anything. Well, it's like that, right? You hear the saying, those who can do, those who can't teach. I take offense to it. I don't even take offense to it at times. I, I used to think about it and I used to think like, no, I'm really meant to teach. Um, but I do want to make an impact. I do think I'm making, I, I think you can make an impact on your students because I'm really trying to prepare them to be good at what they do, not just to go get a job, but to be good. To students considering a sport management program or who are currently in a sport management program, what advice would you give to make sure that they can maximize that experience? Pick the right school. One of my, I'll steal something from one of my colleagues. He tends to say most sport, sport management programs, there's not one that's just like above everyone, right? Just so much better. So if he had a conversation about all the schools in Florida, well, we, we, you know, and if the dean says, well, we want to be great. And he's like, there's not a program that we won't go up against today that we aren't better than. And so I think what you, what students have to think about is where they want to be, but look at the, um, opportunities they have to actually become immersed in the sport industry while they're in college. I think that's the biggest thing. I think our students, we have a student who's a global manager, um, global events manager with the MBA. He talks to our students a lot. He was working, he was always doing something. He started with the Jacksonville Giants and then he went here. He went with, he was in, I think he did an internship with Daytona. He was everywhere and he's in the bubble right now. Um, so it's really putting yourself, I'll use Gainesville as an example. If you had to decide between the University of North Florida, and the University of Gainesville, I always say the University of North, of North Florida were smaller and smarter because the academic profile of a student who comes to UNF is smarter than a UF one, believe it or not. Um, and our sport, we have the LPGA, right? Close by, we have the PGA Tour. Um, we have tennis. We have Division One college athletics. We have the Jaguars. We have a minor league baseball. Yeah, so that I think that's an important thing. I mean, I, 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 first of all, I think you should go to college where it's a good fit. And if you just love the school and they have a sport management program, but you really love the school and that's where you want to go, I say go there. And if you really want to work in the sport industry, get connected and figure out how to be involved. I want to pivot away from the academia because. It, Due to your role, you have a unique opportunity by having to do research, but also you're not in the weeds of having to make an event happen or get a team going or survive a season and, and all that. So you could take a little bit more of that 30,000 foot view to sports. So I want to, and I know you're well-versed in a lot of it. So I want to pick your brain on a number of aspects of it. And the first is the most pressing. And I don't think anybody really knows, so we won't hold you to this in a year to see how it compares to reality, but okay. how does sports rebound from COVID? Wow, I'll be really candid. The debate about paying college athletes has, has gone on for a while. Um, and it was getting to a point where the NCAA was gonna have to make some interesting decisions. The debate about paying college athletes is over. That's my opinion. Um, and I think that College athletics probably really needed this. And we had a panelist on who worked at UNF. She's now there. And she said, you know, this is the Band-Aid getting ripped off. And that is from, from all levels. It's not just Division One, but it's also Division Three. we were talking about. And I worked at Division Three school. 40% of their students are student athletes. Oh, wow. Uh, if 60% are on Pell Grants. I mean, to me, that's not... a that's not the business model that Division Three institutions should be operating off of if their interest is the student athlete. So I think it's a good reset. And I also think it's a good reset for U Sport. I hope. I hope. I mean, when I, we, we're on the other side of this. If I could pick one thing great to come out of this, it would be that the U Sport landscape is reset back to play for your junior high team, play for your high school team, right? Not saying you can't play some travel, but not every youth sport organization is going to come out of the other side of this, nor should they. And I, I say that very candidly. Um, if you've listened to any of the debates, um, not really debates, but 
some of the roundtable conversations they've had on the issue of race and the Black Lives Matter to talk about this idea that we've looked at, you know, if you're Black in America, one of your ways to make a lot of money is to become a celebrity, uh, an entertainer or a professional athlete. And I do think that we have to rethink that as a country. So I, I hope that that is something that comes out of it. The kids who want to be um, really great at a sport, they're working right now to do that. And I say jokingly, like, I love my daughter. I might not let, let her watch it. Well, I will let her because a year ago, she likes to play soccer. I, this is one sport I didn't play. And I thought, yeah, this isn't going to go so well. So we have a, she had her shooting baskets, which she still does. But she just kind of started to turn the corner. I'm like, oh, maybe she can do this. And she is just, she's really wanted to work. So that has been really refreshing because I don't have to take you to practice and I don't have to, you know? And so I think that that is refreshing. I think there's something very refreshing about that. Um, the professional leagues, they'll rebound. Actually, I think in the end, they'll be more, uh, they'll generate more revenue than before. Mm. I do think that there will be a shift. I think from a financial perspective, at some point in time, not that there has to be a cap on how much professional athletes make. So this is my COVID-19 pandemic viewpoint. <clears throat> the sports world led us into shelter in place. And they led a lot of the efforts into Robert Kraft can fly his plane to China to get PPE, but we can't get it. Right? So we do know, I think, well, I do probably because I'm a geek and this is what I teach. I've been talking about the opportunity fund zones that were created in the last in tax cut by Donald Trump. My students would tell you I talk about them at nauseam. And I'm always telling my students to kind of look over here, see what's happening. So, you know, as soon as the, those opportunity fund zones, most of, I think, 29 out of the 32 NFL teams, and you can fact check me on that because it's not exactly right, are located in opportunity fund zones. So I always tell people, if you don't know what an opportunity fund zone is, look it up. But Lot J and the stadium, right, they sit in an opportunity fund zone. And I think we all know that, that the NFL is slotted to make $25 billion by 2025. There's a lot of interesting components as to what's playing out in the country. And I think it will, I think it's, I think it's interesting. That probably didn't answer your question. I think owners are going to have as much money as they had before, if not more. I think players, there's always going to be a group of players um, that are willing to play. I think the biggest implications are going to be on college athletics initially. That idea that youth growing up in youth sport, you've worked so hard to get to go to college. And now we potentially will have spring athletes who got another year for this spring and potentially, and we're going to, my, I don't think fall sports, I don't think fall sports will happen. I don't think college football will happen. I, I don't think college basketball will happen. I think if there's college sports this year, it'll, it'll happen in the spring, which would be great for the NFL, right? Because now if the NFL's television deals up and the NFL plays, the NFL's media rights deal really drives everyone else's, right? And if it's the only thing you could watch, it would actually be really great for them, right? So there's a lot of ways you can look at it. I try and look at it as to, there can be a lot more virtual. It's kind of with esports. So think about what esports has done, right? So esports has really been able to capitalize on sponsorships and advertising. Mm -hmm. Traditional sports really knew or they were really facing a struggle with that. We can't really engage our fans the way esports can, right? We can't really do those types of things. And their sponsorship and advertising dollars have gone grown exponentially. Well, this is the chance for the traditional leagues to do the same thing. How many, how many Madden competitions did you see in the last couple of months, right? This idea of how do you, we have a student, he was on the alumni panel. He works for, um, he's at, Madison Square Garden. So talking about some of the things they have done with their season ticket holders. They brought in Patrick Ewing, I think. Like the, the greats, right? Mm -hmm. And they had calls. They did things like, you know, they communicated in ways that we really probably should have thought about before. 
how do you make that ticket package this much more expensive? Oh, you can have two Zoom calls with two Nick scrapes. So I, I think um, I think that is I think that's where at least traditional sports they're going to capitalize because they're going to be able to um, they're now going to be able to compete in that realm a little bit. I think the popularity, this is what I would hope. I think the popularity of golf and tennis should really grow right now. Like, I think it's a great opportunity to kind of capitalize on this our opportunity or to be creative just because, I mean, I really enjoyed when um, Peyton Manning and Tom Brady play golf. Mm -hmm. Now it took a while. Their commentary took a while to get started, but I enjoyed that. I think people like to, I, I do think, People want to see more personal, the personal side of the athletes. So I think that's, that's a way for them to, there's going to be a lot of ways I think that sport industry should grow from this is my take. And a lot of it sounds like trying to reimagine some things. Do you think that is advantageous then the advantage goes to um, a premier lacrosse or, or some young scrappy and hungry type outlets or can the huge ones, can the NFL can they be nimble and react or is that turning an ocean liner? It's just too hard for them to pivot quickly. They'll pivot. They will. I think, it, I just think, I think you're going to see, I mean, we're already seeing it. Um, soccer is going to definitely grow in popularity. Um, the NFL will, will pivot. And, and I believe that because I think they, they have a really strong fan base, you know, and especially with football, football's a little bit, I mean, different than baseball, and we're seeing baseball play right now. You know, football, your window of opportunity for a lot of players is small to make the kind of money they can make. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I see that as, and, I, and you wonder if they don't play college football, will you have some guys who end up going to the NFL sooner? So I do think, at, at least in terms of the NFL, I, I see the NFL coming back. It'll be interesting. And just a reminder, as you're listening to this, we're sitting here on the afternoon of July 24th. By July 25th, a lot of these things could change. So by the time you're listening to this, who knows where <laughs> all this has landed. Uh, and it's, it's fascinating to see it all play out. There are a number of different metrics within sports, um, but the, the revenue ones, media rights and sponsorship, have both been just going up and up and up and up. And with that then are the valuations of the franchises and the player salaries. Then there's this other metric of attendance, which has in a lot of leagues actually gone down, not even leveled off, but going down. And we're seeing the number of media households go down. Are we at a tipping point where some of this upward trajectory is finally going to start to stop on some of these revenue pieces and the player salary pieces? Or do you think this growth can just continue if this reinvention can happen? Well, I think, I think the reimagining, there's two ways you can look at it. The reimagining from the owner and the league's perspective is that you've seen this growth and you've also seen players' salaries rise at the, almost the same. And so the idea is if we're getting to that top point, how do we level player salaries off or how do they go down a little bit? And I, I think we're gonna see, I mean, college athletic, that's all we see reported this many billions of dollars lost and this many billions of dollars lost. And most people read that and they're like, oh yeah. And I would be the one telling my students like, well, you really should probably read into that. Right. <laughs> like probably should read into that a little bit more. Yeah. They're going to lose with attendance. And so here's what you have to think about for the NFL, for example, the amount of money that every, every team gets for their television deal at the beginning of the year, the owners right now, they've already made money realistically, because their payout from their television rights is enough to pay their entire payroll, which is really always their leverage in bargaining. Um, so yes, attendance and game day revenue, they are going to have to figure out with sponsors what that looks like. That's why I think they'll play. But when the players negotiate their contracts, their salaries, right, and their collective bargaining, their splits come from television, media rights, game day, right? That game day money um, and licensed merchandise. So there's in those three 
pots of money, right? One pot is losing a lot of money. Mm-hmm. And they don't necessarily, players don't have as much insight because a team's books aren't open to know how much sponsorship money is really in that bucket. They can just figure out from attendance how much they should make. So that 60 and the NFL, the split, when they, when the Jaguars play the Bengals, the Jaguars keep 60% of the home gate and the 40% goes into this visiting team pot that then goes into player salaries. So I would speculate that the owners will be coming to the table saying, we don't have as much money as we did before to pay you. With the attendance piece, I always say this, and because I'm in a classroom, I ask my students, raise your hand if you have a television in your house or if you have cable TV in your house. I probably have 25% of my students in the last year who have cable TV. So they are diversifying. So I always say, well, read between the lines because we're talking about cable ratings that haven't included all these other components. Of course, less people are watching because you guys aren't watching on television. You're not watching cable television. I don't know. Maybe the players should figure that out. (laughs) (laughs) You talked about the fan Mm -hmm. experience and the add-on and and what's been, you know, a season ticket holder Zoom session or something like that. But it, it feels very hard anymore when you talk about a ticket buyer to just say fan. You almost always now have the word experience attached to that. That fan experience, how important is it, do you think, for an event, a team, a league to really figure that piece out, to keep the people coming. And it is interesting now to see the games without fans. We get a sense of how much they do really add to the experience, even though it's on TV. Yeah. I mean, I was watching baseball last night. And when you think like the foul ball, like you always, right. When you're watching on TV, just like, are they going to catch it? Like, (laughs) did it hit somebody? Like things, I guess I, always probably do watch for. And so last night I was like, oh, it's kind of disappointing. (laughs) (laughs) What will be interesting is I think athletes are going to have to work harder. And I think athletes are going to actually, could be another interesting component to it. As we look into this idea that athletes are activists and they have these platforms that they stand on, right? I think teams are going to require, if I owned a team, right? The experience, the best way to enhance the experience is to make my players be involved in the experience. If I have exclusive sponsors, then part of your job is to be involved in four or five of these exclusive experiences. And for $45 million, I I think you can afford to do that. So, I mean, they could be creative with it. I I think that that's what teams have to do. They're all going to probably have to go back to the bargaining table. So I I think that could be interesting. That then would have a trickle down to college athletics into this debate about paying college athletes. And, oh, if you have some private company that wants to use your likeness, you can do that. Except for the list will be this long. So now you could have a model potentially they could create that ties the athlete into pushing the brand of the organization they play for within set parameters. That's what I think. And, and, And I feel like if we haven't learned that through this pandemic, how easy it is to get on one of these calls, then what, what have we learned? I did want to ask you about name, image, and likeness, which you just alluded to a little bit there. Okay. What do you envision that looking like and its impact on college athletics? I actually don't see it. I don't see it happening. Hmm. I, don't, I, I, I just, and maybe in some regards it will, But if you have every state that passes legislation that looks different, the NCAA is the governing body. These are the rules that we come up with. If you don't like them, this is a member-driven institution. You don't have to be a member. The other thing is, I think what a lot of people have to realize is that, which I do think we need to get away from. We, We need to get away from the fact that if you choose to be a college athlete, and if you're a division one college football player or a college basketball player, be thankful that the average college student today graduates $20,000 in debt. You have a four year degree, you have no debt. There's a lot of value to that. And there, and so I really stick to the student athlete. If you want to be a professional, go be a professional. Um, I also say I've been, I'll tell you how long, 
I've been a college professor now for 16 years. And I don't think I probably made all the best choices when I was in college. If I'm a college athletic director, I'm not trusting my star running back, who might be a great kid, right, to make those decisions that then affect the institution's brand. I would see it if it does come out that there'll be a laundry list that will say there's exemptions to all of these things. Or the university will have a primary sponsor for banks and restaurants and you name it. And if it's not, if they're not on this list, you can't do it or you can go play somewhere else. And the list is shorter at the other school in the conference. My daughter says she wants to be a professional soccer player. She's going to play on the women's national team. Well, what are you going to do after? She's going to be the president of the United States. I swear to you, that's what she, I'm like, we have big ambitions. Okay. I think that's amazing. Use your platform then. Okay. But you can't just be a professional soccer player. Like what, what do you want to do? Most college students know that they will not be professional athletes. And, and I, I think that that is, and I do think part of that is from the youth system. Like she plays soccer and I tell people all the time, like, so, you know, they don't give full scholarships for soccer. Just we picked the wrong sport here. I'm here because she loves it, but we should be playing golf right now <laughs> for basketball. That's what we should be doing. So I just think, yeah, I think I don't see that playing out. I, I really hope that one of the positives that comes out of this is ending the conversation about paying college athletes. And so I'll tell you what I tell my students. When you listen to that debate, the debate isn't necessarily accurate because the idea is, is that that money really should go back to the institution. Okay. So the university of North Florida, about 70% of our athletic department is funded through student fees. Okay. When California passes a piece of legislation to say they're going to pay student athletes for their likeness, there are public institutions in, Cal- in the California system that have student fees. So I'm like, so you're gonna let an athlete make money on his or her likeness while this classroom of students over here are actually paying for him or her to be a student athlete. That's where the system's messed up because the cost to attend college right now is at an all time high and the money that there is in the conferences should be going back not to the athletic departments at the institution, but at, into the institution to offset the cost of college. That's my struggle with the entire debate is I don't really want to debate a 20 year old as to how much they're worth. I also want to say, cause I do this in my class, like, are you a college athlete? Raise your hand. And I typically know them. I have a class of 36. I have six raise their hand. And I say, they look around the room and say, thank you to your classmates, because there's no such thing as a free lunch. We don't just write the scholarship amount off. Someone's paying for that. So that's my biggest struggle with the debate. And so now you know where I stand on that. The other potential game changer for the sports business industry is betting. And you mentioned that earlier and and similar to name image likeness, it's being rolled out state by state and everybody's handling it a little bit differently, but It is commonplace in a lot of the world. This isn't uncharted territory necessarily. What could that do to the sports business in our market to have gambling pretty easily accessible? I think the struggle is being on a college campus. I do think that that worries me because again, it goes back to paying college athletes. Um, College students are really impressionable. And, and, And there are college students who in some regards, don't have, there's a little bit of gap, right? Or enough money to go home. That they're trying to take care of people. I think that that's why we've just never had, why it's never been legal. And I think what has happened is that it's so easy to go online and see what the lines are and, right? To bet all of these different things that it's become a hobby. I don't, I think in today's world, there's, it's just so much more accessible. Mm-hmm. So it is somewhat concerning to me. But again, I think that lends itself back to the culture we live in, that we should be able to do all of these things. We should just be able to do whatever. And well, yeah, it wasn't legal, right? It it wasn't legal to bet on sports 20 years ago or 40 years ago. 
I don't know. I think what will be, I think again, with professional sport, they're the ones who will capitalize the most on it. Or is that your interaction piece? Do you want to place a, which I think in some regards, if you, but you've been to a Super Bowl party before, right? Mm-hmm. Is the first score a touchdown or a field goal, right? You bet on all these, but they're small, right? So I do think those could be interesting ways, not necessarily monetary, but incentive-wise, who scores first. I think the professional leagues will capitalize. It, it, for college athletics, it's, it's worrisome like, for me. I want to ask you lastly, as I looked through in preparing for this, I kept seeing nonprofit and philanthropy come up in, in oh. information about you. Sports is a unique community builder, but also an opportunity to give back. And just an opportunity for you to talk a little bit about what you've been able to do and, and the power that sports has to do that in giving back to the community. Oh. So in, in Jacksonville specifically, I teach, um, or I, I have taught, I didn't this last semester, a fundraising class. I remember the first day I went to teach it, or the first time I taught it, I don't know if you're familiar with Jacksonville, but J.T. Townsend was one of my students. And so he was just starting his board at the time. And I, I taught the class and, and I kind of taught it from a textbook. And I was like, you cannot teach people fundraising like this. <laughs> <laughs> but it was just kind of like, this is what you're going to teach. I was like, okay. And so after that, I started having them actually fundraise. So we worked with the um, MDA. They put on Muscle Walk. Um, so I think in seven years, my students raised over $200,000. Wow, that's awesome. Um, and so the, I think the first year it was like, they raised like, I feel like it was like $13,000 and then it was 17 and a half. And then every year, so it's almost like in sports, that competition, right? And then it jumped to like 25 and then it jumped to like 32. And I was like, so I did go to the organization and I said, um, JT had, um, actually graduated and then passed away. So I went to the organization. I said, listen, and I had done the math. I said, my students are raising one out of every $3 for this event. So I need somehow to tie it back into the institution. So we were able to endow a scholarship in JT's name. And then we just recently, we lost another student. Um, his name is Manny Hernandez Jr. He had actually been in a car accident and, and had a traumatic brain injury. So he was at UNF with us for a long time. Um, so he had his first accident, traumatic brain injury, came to UNF, finished his sport management degree, um, graduated. I think the following year, he um, was in a single car accident on his way home from church. He was in Gainesville. So we endowed another scholarship for him. So we actually just were able... Um, our students do some work with the PGA during the players. We were there working before they shut everything down. That was interesting, having mm. um, students there. So, yeah, I think the power of sports is amazing. I think you're going to see a lot of that right now. They've really talked about, it, especially with athletes. Like when you think of what um, J.J. Watt did, just the platforms that people have um, and the access to people is is really amazing and i say this all the time sports led us into this kind of like okay we need to pause i really believe sports is what's going to bring us out of it and i i do think sports is just something that allows us to talk about the hard things in society but allows us to kind of make a lot of uh impactful change i want to close as i do all these episodes with the set pieces okay. a half dozen questions that i ask everybody i'm going to start with Podcasts and newsletters, how are you staying informed? You're consuming a ton of information, I can tell. So what are your go-tos? Well, I'm going to start watching your podcast, okay? <laughs> I really did. Um, you know, I have two. So I'm going to say I have two podcasts on my list, and I haven't watched one, but I'm going to, I'm going to start yours, uh, Credentials Only. And Don Lemon started one. Now, I don't know. And he's had a lot of athletes on. And so he was having uh, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, I think, mm. on today. Um, okay. So he's all, which has been interesting to see, like, he's kind of had all these athletes on. So I'm like, I just kind of want to see that interaction. Um, and other than I, that. I'm guessing they're not sticking to sports if, if he's the host. I'm certain that they're not. I'm certain that they're not. But um, I, that's why I want to watch it. I want, I, right. Yeah. I want to see what they're talking about. 
But okay. you know, if a Fox anchor ha- was doing the same thing, I'd watch too, because mm-hmm. I'd probably be intrigued just to kind of see. I think that that's important, though. I think that there's a thing. Sometimes we underestimate the voice that um, not just the voice of athletes, but really um, their insight. I think athletes could bring a lot of common sense to making change in our country. So those are the two. Other than that, I read everything. I, I, I get stuff sent to me every day. It depends on what catches my eye. Are there any sports newsletters, though, sports business ones? Or? I like Sport Business Daily. Okay. Um, I really like that one. Deloitte puts out some pieces. I really like theirs. They just put one out that was like a sport industry outlook after COVID. I'll send it to okay. you. They put out one every year that is the trends. Um, so they just put one out that's called COVID-19 Outlook on U.S. Sports Industry. And it's insights from the Center of Technology, Media, Telecommunications. They put out some really interesting ones every year. Um, so I, I kind of like going to that. Who are your most valuable follows on social media? What posts are you making sure you don't miss? You know, I, I don't, I, that's going to be a bad answer. <laughs> because I use Facebook because it's like my family. I, I really use Twitter for my news. Like when I want to know what's going on in the world, that's where I go. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, and again, it just depends on what in what I'm intrigued in for the day. But it's not like I'm looking. Yeah, and I don't have Instagram. I'm a loser, I guess, so. or Snapchat. What are a couple? Let's go real old school. A couple books you'd recommend? Oh, you know, I even got some out for you. I bought this for my daughter. Chase your Chase dreams. Your dreams. It's awesome. Awesome. I have that, and then we read these. These are our favorite books. All right. Well, you, know you got, I can't see I all got, the titles. I have Who Are the Williams Sisters? These uh, are the okay. best books ever. Who was Jesse Owens? Can you tell my, my daughter has my influence? Okay. This what is was the very women's inter- rights movement was yes, that one? Yes. Okay. What is D-Day? So there's okay. a book. There's a book. They're called Who Was or Who Is or What Was. And I learned like... I learned all kinds of things. So she reads, if you, there's chapters and then there's um, like a informational thing. So my job is I read these. I read the little square pages. So we kind of learn awesome. things together. Yeah. So. Very cool. What are you streaming on TV? I mean, sports just started again. So I watch a lot of the new sports. I watch, again, I have a 10 year old. Um, we watch Anna Green Gables. It's okay. on Netflix. It's a kid show. It's amazing. It's so good. So good. I strongly recommend it to your younger listeners. <laughs> <laughs> I just started watching Schitt's Creek. Have you seen it? Okay. On Netflix? Kind of, I've kind of enjoyed that. I'm not going to lie. I'm a, real, I'm, a, I'm a reality junkie. So Real Housewives, I'm, that's just me. That's what I do. It takes me a long time. I don't watch that much TV, but at night I do. And someone told me about this one show. So that's what I watched. What's your favorite sports memory as a kid? You know, I, I'm going to, can I use one when my daughter, I'll use my daughter. Sure. I took my daughter for her fifth birthday. Um, right before her fifth birthday, her birthday is June 27th. Um, the women's national team won in the quarterfinals. And I took her to the World Cup in Canada. I bought tickets that night. My sister and my niece live in DC and they drove up and met us. And we went to the semifinals of the uh, Women's World Cup. And it was hands down the coolest sporting event I've ever been to in my life. Where was that game? It was in uh, Toronto, wait, wait, Montreal. So I I had said to my sister, we're going to go. And she was like, well, let's wait and see if they win. And they won. And and we were just like, we're going to go because you know, it was in France. It's, you're always going to, I'm like, we can get there. Let's go. It was the coolest experience ever. Yeah. Yours is a slightly different job. Um, but you still go to events, you go to games, you go to conferences. So you still get credentials. Do you keep them? And if so, where's that collection? Um, I keep the lanyards. My, I bring them home. My daughter takes the lanyards. Okay. And then when and I she, see a whole bunch of them laying around, I throw them away. 
<laughs> oh my god. Have any really perfect. cool yeah, I mean you you get to work on the other side. So I can't say I think probably when I worked and um I probably kept some of them. I had one from the WWE for a long time. I kept that one. When I was in New Mexico, yeah. So yeah, I keep the lanyards if it's a good one. Okay. You can always tell the quality of the credential by the lanyard, can't you? Oh yeah. Yeah. Well, I really enjoyed the conversation. We covered a lot of topics, <laughs> but I think it was great. And so I appreciate you taking the time, Dr. Sweeney. Yeah, well, thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to this episode of Credentials Only. And thanks to Dr. Sweeney for sharing her thoughts on such a wide variety of topics and issues that are impacting our industry. As always, check out the show notes on credentialsonly.com for more information on what we discussed. And while you're there, drop us your email address so we can slide into your inbox when we have a new episode to share. Also, make sure to subscribe to Credentials Only on your favorite podcast platform and please leave a review there as well. Mike Mouche edits Credentials Only, which is a Holter Media production.